Welcome to Season 3, Episode 1 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is K. Hank Jost. Hank is a writer, and his novel Deselections is out now through Whiskey Tip Press. Welcome to the show, Hank. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's exciting. <laughs> How's life in New York? Uh, life in New York's all right. It's New York, so it's uh, equal times, like, exciting and hellish. I don't know. This summer, as, as like, a service industry worker, this summer has been really tough because it's the first time that people have uh, been able to, like, leave the city in droves in, like, two years. So the like the city has like completely emptied out in a way that I haven't ever seen since you know everyone left during the uh, lockdown. Mm. So it's been on that side very very difficult. Um, but summers are always slow, and yeah, it's coming back. The students are back. So <laughs> autumn in New York is the time to be here. That sounds cool. What part of New York do you live in? I live in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. It's like South Brooklyn. Uh, it's Brooklyn's and Brooklyn's weird because there's no uh, there's no north to south trains. So I hang out in Lower Manhattan because it's the easiest like yeah. next neighborhood to get to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I live live in Sunset Park, which is a it's a really cool neighborhood. But it's re- it's a really sleepy neighborhood too. Okay, it's Fair. like families and stuff. Yeah, I spent a bit of time in Brooklyn. It's really diverse. Yeah, no, Brooklyn's nuts. Mm. Brooklyn's nuts. Getting around is awful, though. <laughs> it was, just can't get anywhere. Yeah. I have to ask you about your diverse background because I feel like um, you've just done every single thing out there. Uh, and you grew up in the South and, you know, moved lots of places like Indiana. But I wanted to give you a chance to, to tell us the brief version of the Hank uh, Just uh, biopic. Uh, and <laughs> also who's playing right. the movie oh man <laughs> i haven't thought i've never thought about that <laughs> that's a that's a tough one uh i feel like the the hank jost biopic would open like a, a, a in a trailer park in central texas <laughs> like uh and it would it would open with my dad selling the trailer at a garage sale when I was six years old. <laughs> we were like trying to move, I think, to California after he had like finished school and he was going to go be a professor uh, at Fresno. And we couldn't like I don't know what the deal was. We like were having trouble selling the trailer or something. And he sold it at the garage sale to someone like buying used baby toys. <laughs> um it's a good opening scene <laughs> you know yeah uh yeah it's it like i was born in texas most of my family still lives there um and then california for a year and then like did most of my like early childhood and early teens in georgia um and my dad worked as a like a research specialist for uga in the agronomy department so we would spend like the weekends going to farms and stuff so i had this weird like mix of like aspirational sort of like suburban but always like cheaply suburban until i was in my late teens mixed with like just like straight up redneck farm kid shit 
just, you know, I don't know, dad waking you up at five o'clock in the morning on a Saturday being like, we're gonna go kill something. Come on. <laughs> going hunting and counting cotton plants. Wow. And then, yeah, it's been a progressive uh, move north since then. <laughs> You're also a musician. Um, professionally, you worked like as a line cook and all sorts of things. And I think a lot of that stuff bleeds into your work, which we'll talk about soon. But you want to tell us a bit about, um, you know, being a musician and, and all of the other kind of weird odd jobs you've done yeah um i i i studied jazz bass and music composition in college before switching to comp lit and then dropping out completely um i started i started playing when i was like 13 because we moved to north carolina and the church that we were going to had like a praise band and i was 13 and bored and bass looked really easy so i convinced uh convinced my parents to let me have like the money out of my bank account to go buy a bass from a pawn shop and sort of like taught myself for a couple years. And then when I was like later in high school, uh, started taking it more seriously and took lessons and all of that and did all the auditions and ended up going to school for a while and could not hack it at the collegiate level. I was not as disciplined a person <laughs> at 18 as I am at 28. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, worked all through high school. I've been a janitor, uh, <laughs> museum attendant, line cook. Currently, I am a bartender, which is definitely better than being line cook work is miserable. <laughs> it's absolutely brutal. Um, but yeah, I think that's the summation mm. of it. Yeah. Yeah. We were talking before about the fact that you, I guess, uh, being a bartender, it kind of gives you the opportunity to do a fair bit of writing um, on your own work and other people's work as well. Do you want to tell us about how you got into writing and, and I guess how your process works at the moment with writing? Yeah, I got I got into writing, I think, like the first time um, when I was 13 uh, or whatever age you are in sixth grade, I guess, because I had been... Uh, reading Stephen King, like started reading Stephen King in sixth grade. And like, I don't know, it's one of those things that like, I'm, I'm the type of person that if I like something, I want to know how to do it. So I, uh, like if I like consuming a certain medium, I want to know how to do it. So I started writing like stories for fun. Um, and then did that till about like freshman year of college and then dropped off, stopped reading at all for a while until I had a history professor that gave me uh, Slaughterhouse Five and that sort of like kicked it back up and then stopped again in music school. And when I, when I dropped out of school um, and started working in restaurants, like writing and reading is like the cheapest form of entertainment. And it was like a survival mechanism almost like just to keep myself sane. And uh, yeah, I think like I just had it instilled in me from music school that like having a practice is like, it's good for you to have a consistent practice. And if I wasn't, when I wasn't playing music, that's, I think writing just sort of uh, took that role and I fell in love with it all over again. But yeah, I've been doing it for like 10 years, I think. Okay. And so now I know you do some editing work as well for other people's work. Um... We're still trying to figure out that process. That, uh, that whole thing is new, like within the last month, that sort of started um, and being on that end of the writing process is really interesting. Cause I've had like, 
I've had critical relationships with people where we share each other's work and like really go in and just like gut short stories and, uh, you know, share critique and all of that. Um, but that's usually, you know, just to, to share each other's thoughts on the work. Uh, the being in the position of like an editor now, I feel like is, is, is something I'm still trying to work out exactly how it's going to, what the workflow is going to be like and what I'm going to try to do. Um, except I don't know <laughs> what being on that side of the process is supposed to look like kind of making it up as I go. Um, so it'll be like next three months, it'll start to solidify. Okay. But I am accepting submissions at that magazine now. Awesome. So. Okay. Very cool. Before we move on to deselections, I do have to ask you the elephant in the room question uh, regarding the K at the front <laughs> of your name. <laughs> and you'll right. make up the most adventurous tale uh, you can. <laughs> uh, I, wish it, I wish it was something uh, interesting, but I, my, my full name is Keith Henry Jost. Um, I the name Keith is fine. I've I went by Keith for most of my life up until I was like 23. And then I had a girlfriend that started calling me Hank for Henry is my middle name. And I was like, I like this much better. Mm -hmm. And so I've been going by Hank since then. Uh, and when the book was coming out, I decided to, to put the K there to appease my parents. Cause my mom does not like that. I go by Hank. <laughs> they named me Keith. I get it. I understand. But I much prefer Hank. <laughs> we were, before we started recording, we were shitting all over Keats because it's not really. <laughs> yeah. It does take you back to the trailer park. Absolutely. My dad chose it because it's a good baseball name and I don't like baseball. So <laughs> <laughs> this just didn't quite work. <laughs> um, but you do join a pretty exclusive club of writers who use one initial these are the ones I could think of. I could think of F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, right. Then we get to people like L. Frank Baum, not as exciting. And then L. Ron Hubbard. So, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. Yeah. I have a poet friend who goes by, his, he go, it's a J. Gordon Thaler. But mm. his, I, if I remember correctly, the J doesn't stand for anything. Like his, <laughs> his first name is just an initial. Okay. Uh, yeah. There you go. Well, if you want to start something like Scientology, then, you know, all power to you. Uh, I'm definitely working on a cult. Absolutely. Excellent. That's been an ambition of mine since I was a child. I was raised very religious. You know, I just want to get back into that. I think okay. I'll start it myself. You... <laughs> all right. Sell me the cult. I want to I wanna join. Oh, I don't know. We don't have it quite. It's not all worked out quite yet. The, the... I feel like the theology and the dogma of a personality cult is generally emergent from the, uh, like, the necessity of keeping the cult together like the cult leaders just making shit up the whole time as people start as, as the threads start to fray new stories get woven in you know so i'll let you know when i open the doors perfect okay good all right that's your job think of it think of a really catchy name as well and i think you'll have quite a few members joining good good that's what this is for <laughs> forget the book <laughs> starting the cult now that's right whiskey tip press it's over this is just like basically a diversion <laughs> right 
whiskey tits kind of a cult actually that that, that makes sense <laughs> all right well um let's talk about deselections even though obviously it's not what we're here to do anymore um but <laughs> might as well get it out of the way it is an apocrypha as we discussed that's right so. yeah well it, that's right because it does take the form of kind of like this bizarre kind of apocrypha of an undiscovered or lost text but basically you've got like nine interconnected stories that kind of uh, almost prove the existence of this lost text. Um, and they all kind of take place in, like, I guess, places that I figure that you've probably had some experience in, like being a line cook and other kind of, I guess, mundane, everyday life kind of elements. Um, but do you want to tell us how this book came about and how the stories kind of interweave to tell us about this bigger narrative that doesn't exist? Yeah, yeah. Um, the bigger narrative is... So, well, I'll get there in a second. That's a that's a hell of a, a thing to unpack. Um, the the book itself was just it, it started out as exercises, like character studies for the the uh, central cast of a much larger novel that I had been planning that was growing increasingly unwieldy. And I was like, I need to have a firmer understanding of who these people are before I can really like get into this thing. Um, and last year, I just made a a challenge for myself to write one of these a month. Um, which is the, it's the fastest I've ever written stuff. Like some of these, like the last story is 10,000 words. Uh, and I did that in December of last year. Uh, and 10,000 10, words is a lot to pump out multiple times, clean up, edit, and, you know, cut down from all that. Um, but yeah, that, that was the, that was the initial conceit, uh, of the project was just to do these character studies and then by the end of it, it it felt cohesive enough um and i liked the idea of having a volume that was an appendix and or apocrypha to a text that the reader would have no access to um and might never get any access to i don't know if i'll ever finish that that book um the so it's like on the on the first page it's called like yeah deselections from the hagiography of a disc jockey um and that was the that was the novel was the hagiography itself um and it was it was it was going to be about a, a a sort of cult that forms around a dj in a small college town um sort of like transhumanist dj uh it got really difficult to to juggle but i think the the stories that came out of it i still like um yeah that was the that answer the question yeah <laughs> a little bit yeah. yeah okay i think i think it's really interesting because you have that intro and it's basically just a half a page kind of <laughs> almost explaining the apocryphal kind of like texts that are presented and then right. get these clues into this undiscovered text but uh, we don't really like the stories interconnect and they interweave but they never kind of come together in a way apart from in that little paragraph at the front, which I think yeah, makes no. it more interesting for the reader because you're trying to patch it together. Right. There's, I mean, I, I can say like the, uh, um, I mean, I think it's in the introduction that the term barycenter or like barycentrically, I think is in the intro. Mm -hmm. um, just something that a, a, a word that a friend introduced me to. Um, and it's like the, you have like in, astrophysics or whatever they're like a, a a massive body that and it's gravity and other things orbit around it but if you have two 
massive bodies, um, they will orbit around a central point that doesn't that, that's not there, right? That's just like the I don't know the the mean of their specific gravity or whatever. I'm not a scientist, but it's cool. Um, and that's kind of how I thought about the book. Is like there is in the book the moment that would be the climax of this. Uh, I think it's in the third story. Uh, that would be the climax of the novel, but I wouldn't want a reader to to, to spend too much time trying to find it because it's deliberately so obscure and uh, happens so fast that it, it it really I don't think it adds too much. Um, I think the real thing is for the reader to try to weave them together and to sort out the timeline between all the stories because they're not told sequentially mm. in the layout nor are they sequentially in their individual telling like most of the narratives are really circular and sort of fractious one of the things i really enjoyed about this collection is the writing because i think you've got a really individualized style and i think these stories are kind of they're kind of uh locked down into mundane kind of aspects of everyday life but like the detail you are able to put in to these stories and the style of writing is really high level stuff. Like it really does, you know, remind me of a whole lot of other like writers, like even, you know, people like Robert Coover with his short stories. I think the, the tone of it. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> yeah. Now just the tone of, of being able to write mundanely and beautifully at the same time, I think is, is a really massive skill. I appreciate that. I think that's a, when I first, when I got into reading seriously and writing seriously, um, when I was in my early, like getting back into it when I was in my early 20s, uh, the first people I read after having not read much for a while was like Gas and Coover um, and Joyce. Like I just like getting right immediately into that sort of stuff. Um, and then those sorts of like stylistic things. I owe, I, I, I owe that to Gary L. Lutz. Like discovering Lutz's work over the pandemic. I'd, I had never heard, never heard of her until the, the Tyrant uh, complete edition came out. And I mean, that shit rocked me. And then reading that essay, um, The Sentence is a Lonely Place and talking specifically about the sounds of words and the rhythms of the sentences in a way that as a, the only academic training I've had in anything is, is music composition and playing music and that's how I conceive of the stories so like having that even go into the level of the, the the language being used I think was really transformative. I think Arielle like the fact that she's able to look at sentences on a like syllable level um, like looking at assonance and things like that in in words and how it reads out loud I think is unbelievable but I feel like with you as well like you've got that whole aspect of music but then I also saw that a lot of these stories have been adapted uh into kind of I don't even know what you call it but you could like whole kind of voice acted plays almost yeah have you listened to those I've listened to a few I only, to any of those I only found out about it yesterday so I've got oh it. damn yeah yeah, I should have I should have put that in the email or something because that's been we've been doing that for a year. We we were doing that before the book was even out. Wow, that was part of the pitch to Whiskey Tit is that we were gonna that this the project is called Sparks Butter and Die, 
It's a podcast, if anyone wants to listen, and it's the stories from Deselections with full musical score, voice acted. I do the narration. Um, and my friend and producer, Andrew Lynx, does all of the music. And it's it's a massive undertaking, the amount of work that goes into one of these things. It's like months to finish one. Um, yeah, that's been a whole process. But yeah, they're they're cool. I like I, I like that part of this project. Is that is that finished yet? Like, have you done the whole nine stories? No. Well, we were supposed to. Have, we we had planned on having it done by the end of the summer, but it just got like some of them are so long. Like the last one, so long that it's just it's going to be two and a half hours of music that he has to write for it, um, which is a lot. Um, yeah, we've got we we've gotten everything almost everything recorded so the rest like mixing mastering and then doing the music for it is the last thing and we'd like to have it done by the end of the year but it's kind of a just a continuous work in progress so we want to start doing it with other people's work like we want to treat it like a journal of some sort and have people submit and musicians submit and then pair musicians with writers and do the whole treatment with work that isn't ours well uh, unbelievable yeah i listened to the first half of the first one last night and yeah i was kind of blown away by the by the amount of work that's gone into this like it does uh feel so well produced and like the music as you said is just brilliant and um you know your narration sounded amazing so i've got to get back to that i think that might be my commute for the next few days i'll be listening to hell you. yeah uh would we be able to play some of your fantastic podcast on this podcast absolutely i'm sure andrew would uh be stoked to have it somewhere else as well so yeah sweet well we'll listen to some of that now Eyes rise to Cliff, packing a piece in his dugout. Will smiles. The hot pain in his ears hardens at his cheeks peaking. Yeah. Good. Good. Leans against the alley wall. Mural run to grimy smudge blooming behind him. The air fills with pissy grass. An exhale, ash and resin clod knocked. Cliff makes to pass the pipe and box. Need? No. I'm fine. All swallowed, teeth tight. Jaw clenched, tongue stiff, swole up and aching. You sure? Look like you've had a long one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cigarette smoke hits Will's throat like cool lead, lungs like pebbles. Menthol's got nothing to offer, the stony agony. Set to sprawl at the crest of the lunch rush, a scratchy throat and thumbtacks in his ears. How many doubles have you worked this week, Willie? Three fingers. All in a row? Nods. Off tomorrow? Shakes his head. Can't tell if the heat rising around his eyes is sweat or tears. Knows everything gets blurry. Nose twists to sniff it away, but his sinuses are filled with concrete. Coughs one from way deep. God damn, Lee. You sign up for that or Travis botching your schedule on purpose? I need the money. Voice like a brush fire. Cliff sits on the upturned milk crate next to Will's. 
unzips his backpack, removes his knife bag and apron and work shoes, rummages in the remaining mass of cloth, wire, and crumpled pay stubs for his own smokes, not even got his non-slips on yet, showed up wearing cowboy boots, raw denim jeans, and a bomber jacket. Likes to make it clear as dawn after a night too long that the kitchen's failures have amounted ultimately to his being inconvenienced. You know, everyone always needs the money, but hell, son, unless you've got eviction notices or the law after you, or alimony or some shit like that, best not worry too much about it. Not when you've got family like this. Claps his hand on the back of Will's neck and squeezes. One of his constant paternalisms, commiserative and terrifying. Will appreciates it. The kitchen here was his first gig after getting chewed up and spat out in twitchy little bits by the university at the end of last year's spring semester. Took all summer to get into the kitchen's rhythms, get the menu memorized top to bottom enough to sling without thinking. He was just starting to feel it when the autumn semester tumbled in and brought back all the hellish particularities of suburbia. He folded within a month. A panic attack paralyzed him at the grill, tail as old as they come. Cliff had been called in that night as well. A three-piece suit, charcoal gray vest and tie, cufflinks sparkling, looking fresh out the cleaners, hair slicked, smelling like cologne and pomade. Leveled it all, Master Mason. What's the problem? Nothing, Cliff. Just taking a breather. You didn't need to- And Will kicked the alley's ash bucket over a scooch to hide the spatter of yellow vomit on the concrete. Just taking a- Busy? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Wild. Just you? Cliff produced the dugout from his vest's watch pocket. Nah, no. Rory's in too. Oh, so just Rory then? Point taken. Couldn't muster much else to say. Easy enough to predict where the conversation was going. A back and forth cornering Will into accepting the problem is simply that he wasn't slinging fast enough. No moral or essential failing here, just not moving with enough giddy-up. Something anyone can go correct, so go correct it. Tickets can only ever come too quick for one cook. But there's always two in the evenings. Always backup, never alone. And now, pocketing the dugout. There's three. Since then, end of last September, Will's been designated dish bitch on busy nights. Occasionally called up to the line to prep on the fly, or to the salad station to wrangle with the wilted when the shit gets dicey. Rory still here? Cliff asks and drags. Nah. Rory'd run off about an hour ago. Freaked out after throwing brushfuls of melted butter at the broiler flames, sending wicked, soot-edged tongues licking up to the hood racks. One line of blow too many attempting to offset the come-down of last night's molly. Not the first time, not the last. Will coughs again. Hacks up a nugget come dislodged from the roiling rock in his head. Then who's in the kitchen, Lee? Trav. Will makes to take a puff, but the cherry has fallen. Cliff smiles and passes his pack over. I have another. Do the bastard some good to be in it for real for a while. And again with the hand and neck. Another squeeze and the sweat gathered there and... You're hotter than a motherfucker, you know that? Like boiling. Yeah, I think the hood vents are fucked. Smoke lit out of obligation. Inhale a fist. Nah, nah, nah. Rubs his callous palm through the sup. That's fever shit, Willie. Here. Grabs Will's chin and swivels his head. A nut rusted onto its bolt, coming away in squeals and flakes brushes away the slick strings of hair and presses palm to forehead. Oh shit, yeah, you're on fucking fire. Will swallows a desert and a half. I can't go home yet, I need the- Oh, no way, dude. No way am I working with Travis alone. Perches the cig in the corner of his mouth and bends to slough boot from sock. We'll break it over the fryers.
Brilliant. That was from the first episode of Sparks, Butter and I, The Mendicant. We have a we 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 have a joke between us that this it's the highest production value, lowest budget, lowest listener count podcast on the internet. <laughs> like, no one knows about it. It's been months of our lives trying to piece it together, and yeah, it's cool though. Andrew's work is amazing. The funny thing is, I only found out about it because I was uh, one of the local bookshops here who sell books online in their description they have the description of not your actual book they have the description of the podcast which i right like, mistake and then i went and looked it up yeah that was a mistake that was something uh i thought we had fixed <laughs> <laughs> there's like yeah um the 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 publishing of deselections was a very fast process and i think there's just like like little, little things like that we just like you know it went from it went from submission to press in the span of two and a half months. Um, so it, it, it was like little, little things like that. Uh, I did, I, I don't work in publishing until I guess recently. And I didn't realize until this was published, how slow the publishing world is. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a degree of patience that I don't think I have that I need to uh, somehow gather. <laughs> Well, talking about that, uh, let's talk about working with renowned cult leader Miette over at Whiskey Tip. <laughs> yeah, um, Miette's the best. Miette's great. She's a an absolute, like, just wonderful person. Um, I met her. The bar that I work at in Manhattan is called Big Bar. And everything good that's happened to me in the city is because of that bar. Like every artistic achievement is because of someone I met there. And I met her, her there because the owner of that bar is one of the writers on Whiskey Tip. Um, Stefan Rock. I don't know if you've uh, no, seen or read any of his work. He's, his, his stuff is amazing. It's like weird cyberpunky fucking schizophrenic shit. It's nuts. Um, but yeah, he, he made the introductions. Um, and then over the course of a, a couple years of knowing her, finally had a project worth pitching. And we all did a reading uh, at this artist's studio, got incredibly drunk on the roof. And I was like, you should publish my book. <laughs> she's like, send it, whatever. <laughs> wow. Um yeah, I can't believe that it came out so quickly because normally like with writers I speak to, like they just have this lead time of like a year or two years at least. And yeah, getting something out in, in that amount of time is insane. Yeah, I mean, she she busted. She's the only one insofar as I know that like runs that press and she busted her ass getting it done. We did a lot of stuff on our side as well. Like the cover design was done by a friend of mine. Me and Stefan did the editing mm. uh, of the text itself. So when we sent it to her, it was ready to print. You know, we had, we'd, we'd covered all those bases. Um, and we managed to get it out by this writer's conference. It was in Philadelphia. That's when we wanted to have it out and we managed it. Um, yeah, I didn't know that about the publishing world. That stuff moved so slow until I was at that conference and talking to other writers. I was like, yeah, like they had their debuts or like, you know, they had new stuff coming out at the conference and asking them, you know, how, how long ago did you submit? What's your process been like? And it's like, oh, I sent this to my agent. 
I got, I sent this to my agent five years ago, got my <laughs> acceptance four years ago, didn't hear back for another year and a half. And, you know, it's just like, uh, I, I only know from the writing side and I think I have, I have like very specific, uh, daily benchmarks that I set for myself and I, I deadline everything. Like I have, when I sit down to write a project, I know exactly how long it's going to take me to write it. And rarely have I been wrong about the the links. Before we talk about your projects you're currently working on, uh, do you have any, uh, I guess, authors over at Whiskey Tit who you'd like to give a shout out to? Because I'm reading two books by them at the moment, um, Autodidacts by Thomas Kendall. And mm-hmm. and there's one other I've got on my shelf as well. But um, they're just putting out so much great work. But what have you found yeah, like, they, you into? They do amazing stuff, like all together. But uh, the two guys that I know the best... Um, who whose work I really admire is Stefan O'Rock um, and then Joey Truman. Joey Truman's work is really interesting. Him and I do a lot of readings together because we sort of write from the same vantage, like sort of like low to the ground, fucking hard scrabble, you know, everything's covered in grease and blood at the end of the story sort of thing. Um, but his, his, his work is really great. And he's, he's one of those guys. He pumps shit out. I've never seen someone write so many books so fast, wow. but yeah, Joey Truman and Stefano Rock. Those dudes do it. Awesome. Very cool. Uh, let's talk about what you're working on at the moment. Yeah, uh, I'm working on another on a on a new novel. Uh, I started it two weeks after Deselections launched. So it's like second week of April, I guess, is when I would have started writing it. Finished the first draft and I'm now doing the rewrites and should have it done by the end of November. But it's a, uh, it's just as gross as deselection, <laughs> um, <laughs> but about a much more tender subject. It's like uh, my joke is that it's about love and the housing market, two things that don't make sense together. Um, it's a, the general premise is like two like down and out the couple, this like down and out, uh, never gonna make it, wanna be artist, hipster couple in New York sort of thing. Uh, whose relationship has been on the rocks forever. They get asked to dog sit for a rich family in a nicer neighborhood. Like they get access to a full brownstone for two weeks. Um, And they find that it's much easier to be in love in that space. So they decide to change the locks before the family can come back. (laughs) (laughs) And the book is about these two, the deliberation through the locked door over the course of three days between this family that's trying to be reasonable and get these kids out and these kids that are being totally there's that are squatting in their you know multi-million dollar house um <laughs> and it's i hope it's funny i know it's sad <laughs> i know for sure that it's sad uh yeah i like this project a lot it's been it's been pretty smooth the have, you got a title? have you got a title for us yeah, it's called Aquarium. Okay. That'll be the title. Nice. Okay. And I assume Miet will have it out like in December then, correct? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Uh, I'll give her it. We'll, we'll do it uh, two, two weeks from, from, from final <laughs> edit. <to> <laughs> right. We'll print it ourselves. <laughs> we'll just handwrite it all <laughs> in pamphlets. Are you ready to talk about your gateway books? Uh, yeah, sure. That's an interesting question for me. What like started me reading and subsequently writing because uh, 
I'm, I'm I was raised uh, Lutheran, and I guess like what I was always told is like the core tenet of being a Lutheran is like the ability to do biblical exegesis and like actually read the text and understand it and have a full so like reading is a huge part of being Lutheran. Like Lutherans should know the Bible. So I read the Bible a lot when I was a kid and still do. I have, it's the one thing I collect is like a, a Bible translations. I, I'm fascinated by it as a book. Um, Robert Alter's new translation of the Hebrew Bible is one of the best things I've ever read. It's incredible. Um, so there's that, but then also I started reading like for pleasure and um, like voraciously, I think like a lot of people do in like middle school. And I started reading I started reading Stephen King in sixth grade because my parents wouldn't let me watch rated R movies. <laughs> but if I read the book, I could see the movie. So I read Carrie and The Shining and all that stuff. Um, Christine, uh, just so I could watch these movies that my friends were watching that <laughs> normally I wouldn't have been allowed to. Um, yeah. And so those are... Stephen King was big. The, the the Bible, weirdly, is is still huge for me. I think Vonnegut reignited my love for reading in my late teens and early 20s. Um, and then uh, Gases in the Heart of the Heart of the Country was the one that sort of like kicked me in the ass and be like, this is how fucking writing works, you know? <laughs> yeah, Gas is amazing. I just think that there's not many people who can write a short story or a novel like William Gass. Absolutely not. I, it, it still baffles me every time I read his stuff. Yeah. I think that's the gateways. I'm understanding the, the prompt properly. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What books are you currently reading or are you looking forward to, or have you recently enjoyed? Um, I'm currently, my, my, my fall reading project is to do all of Kafka. So I, I up until recently hadn't read any Kafka. So I just finished the castle and the trial and I'm like 30 very disappointed pages into America. It's like, I know it's an early work, but it's a tough one in comparison to the other two novels. Um, and then I'm going to read all the, all the collected, um, all the collected short fiction. Uh, and I'm reading uh, Bachelard's Poetics of Space. Um, sort of as research for the novel, since the novel is so much about the spaces that people live in and like the sort of like psychological impact of those. And then I, I plan, after I finish the Kafka, I plan to read the Snopes trilogy by Faulkner. Uh, I'm excited to revisit. I read Absalom, Absalom a couple of years ago and, you know, it's like flying reading that book. Um, and then I'm always I'm always reading uh, the Bible and Homer. Like I, I recently dove back into the Iliad for some reason, which is I think my favorite book of all time. I love I love that book. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with K. Hank Jost. This episode is brought to you by my interview with Kanye West. Here's a sneak peek. Also, when you said I hadn't read this book, I actually haven't read any book. Reading is like eating Brussels sprouts for me. Coming soon on Beyond the Zero.
We're back on Beyond the Zero. It's time for Hank's Desert Island Books. I think number one is the Iliad. And then weirdly enough, number two is Ulysses for me. It's like, I hate, I don't like the Odyssey. I think it's stupid. I think it's like the lie of Western literature starts with the Odyssey. Like the the notion of story and narrative and the hero as a, as a thing, because that's that's largely absent in the Iliad. The Iliad doesn't have this narrative arc. It's just this series of things that happens between a fit, you know. Um, and then three is like Moby Dick. I think is one of those books that just could replace the Bible if you did like a <laughs> some like new cultural thing, you know, new history. You could start it with Moby Dick. Um, Four is the recognitions. I discovered Gaddis over the lockdown and read all of it. And the recognitions is the one that I keep going back to in my head. Uh, the complete Gary Lutz, the tyrant edition um, of Gary Lutz's work is, I'll be reading that book for the rest of my life without a doubt. Um, the Castle by Kafka jumped immediately onto the list after I read it. Uh, it reminds me of like, reminds me of why box music is so good, because it's just this this process, this like one process or one idea, just over and over again, getting increasingly complicated. Um, and even though the castle's like unfinished, I could imagine it being anywhere between four hundred to twelve hundred pages long. Like he could run that joke down down the line for forever. Um, and then in the heart of the heart of the country by William Gass. Um, the entire corpus of Dorothy, Dorothy Allison's work, I think, is really special. Master out of Carolina and Cave Dweller in particular. Um, Cave Dweller is one of those books that I like buy for people uh, just because I think people should read it. And then uh, Tristram Shandy is another one of those books that just blew my mind and I fell in love with and I'll be reading over and over again forever and ever. And then the last spot, I'm, I, like a toss-up between um, Reese DJ Pancakes' Complete Stories or Stream Systems by Gerald Murnane, which I don't know why no one talks about Gerald Murnane, but everyone should always be talking about Gerald Murnane. Hopefully Gerald is listening to this. I'm sure he's a regular listener out there in, <laughs> out there in Victoria somewhere in the country. That'd be cool. <laughs> I love him. His work is fascinating. He's got an open invitation here. I, I, I'm tempted to go out and drive out to his town <laughs> a couple of hours from here. So, yeah, could be interesting. I've heard that's the only way to actually get the man, like, to get a conversation happening with him. Yeah, or meet him at the racetrack. Right. <laughs> oh, I love him. I have a feeling that if I did go out to his house, he'd be kind of like a Keith at the door with a shotgun, you know, <laughs> a life beater. Oh my God. Keith at the door is such a good, like <laughs> Southern Gothic novel title. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Enemy at the gate, Keith at the door. <laughs> Gerald at the races. Gerald. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. There you go. That's that's a series uh, that you can launch your cult on. I got it. Yeah, those the, that'll be the three uh, non-apocryphal texts. That'll be the actual canon. <laughs> you know. 
Perfect. Well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. But before I let you go, do you want to tell us where we can listen to the podcast of your deselections and also where we can go out and get the book? Because it is fantastic. Uh, yeah, you can listen to the the podcast is called Spark, Sputter and Die. And it's on it's on all podcast networks, Spotify, whatever. Um, we also have a Patreon if you would like to if anyone would like to give us some money to keep doing this because we do try to pay all of our contributors and voice actors um right now the book can be found uh most readily on like direct from whiskey tit the publisher um we've yet to figure out distribution for it uh in stores and stuff there are a couple in the states that carry it but that's that's all right now um yeah cool you can follow me on instagram (laughs) okay Excellent. Well, I'll put all that in the show notes and I will be listening to you uh, in the car quite soon. Hell yeah. Glad (laughs) to hear it, Ben. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining me. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for having me, man. I really appreciate this. This was, (laughs) this was special. I love the show. Thanks once again to Hank Jost. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at BeyondZeroPod, and you can email us at BeyondZeroPod at gmail.com. Don't forget to leave us a voice message over at anchor.fm forward slash beyondzero. We'll be back with the next episode very soon.